Welcome to this very special Christmas Day edition of The History Show. Tonight, we're going to look back a century ago to Christmas 1922. It was the first Christmas celebrated in the newly independent Irish Free State, officially created barely a fortnight before on the 6th of December 1922. I think people were trying to make the most of it. I mean, there's certainly an air of celebration throughout the year. And we're not going to let a Christmas go by in this country without (laughs) having some sort of a party around it as well. A lot had happened over the preceding 12 months as the provisional government got to work setting up new institutions to serve the Irish people, institutions like the Civic Guard, later on Garda Síochána. There were big changes, like the withdrawal of over 50,000 British Army soldiers from Ireland. All the other small little kind of buildings that were occupied by the British Army are evacuated. After visiting for for 750 years, that was the the last time that the British Army were were in the uh, 26 counties. And there were smaller ones that were nonetheless symbolically very important. For example, among the first acts of the populace was the painting of red post boxes green. And they're still with us. A national army was created and details about individual soldiers in this new army are recorded in a census conducted in late 1922. These splits happening in different barracks they didn't know who was on their books. On the night of the 12th and 13th of November, they recorded at each post every soldier that was there. All this against the backdrop of a bitter civil war, of course. We begin this evening with the words of General Richard Mulcahy, the commander of the National Army. In the Christmas edition of Anthoglock, the official organ of the Free State Army, he wrote a message to his men. To the Army of Ireland, as much as to the plain people of Ireland, it is a matter of deep regret that this Christmas in Ireland is not a season of peace and goodwill. The Army has done heroic work in the effort to restore peace and order in Ireland and to give the plain people the power of enjoying freedom and happiness, uninterrupted by the sight or sound of guns. That conditions now are so much more peaceful and settled than they were a few months ago is due to the splendid work of the Army of Ireland. Today the Irish Free State is established and internationally recognised. Our Senate and Parliament are functioning. The rule of the gun has given way to the rule of ordered and lawful government. Our government is fully established and recognised by the nations of the world. Our national tricolour floats over every former British stronghold in Serstot Éireann. To all the officers and men of the Army of Ireland, this resolve will cheer a Christmas, which men who have done such sterling work for Ireland deserve to enjoy in happiness. The words there of Richard Mulcahy, written in the Army magazine on Toglock, dated 23rd of December 1922. I'm joined this evening by three guests. Cathy Scuffle is Dublin City Council historian in residence. Noel Grothier is an archivist with the Military Archives and Lar Joy is Port Heritage Director at Dublin Port. You're all very, very welcome indeed to our special Christmas Day programme. Um, well, you brought in uh, a couple of, of editions of Anthoglock from the end of 1922. Uh, 
Do you see a change in the tone in the Army's publication towards the end of the year? Oh, you really see towards the end of the year and really into 1923, it goes from being the journal of the Irish Volunteers and the IRA to being becoming really a military journal for the National Army. It changes from very brief issues focusing on, you know, not quite propaganda, but kind of brief announcements of what's happening to focusing on things like uh, sports results in the new Army Athletic Association. So it goes from being just a very brief journal to being actually a specific military newsletter for the troops of the new National Army. Almost in a sense, rejecting its its past history as the, the journal of the Irish Volunteers. Kind of, it resets its course as, as a military publication. You start seeing academic articles on on how to operate in a military fashion. And it becomes essentially a newsletter of the new National Army. Mm. Cathy, um, we heard there in Richard Mulcahy's Christmas message to the army that it was not a season of peace and goodwill. Indeed, for some, it was a pretty miserable Christmas. Tell us about the workers at Dolphin's Barn Brickworks. Oh, yes, this was really something else. They'd had a busy year because there was a lot of house building took place during the year, ironically. And we were all set. The new kiln had been opened. Bonuses were promised. The Christmas pay was to be uh, arranged. And the next thing, the anti-treaty forces raided the headquarters and robbed all the pay and all the bonuses. So it was a very lean year in Dolphins Barn because nobody had a turkey. There was no wages paid to the brickworkers. At least they were building houses back in 1922. <laughs> um, this was uh, the year, of course, that the Irish Free State came into being uh, the 6th of December of 1922. And there's an almost Christmassy scene going back to a lot earlier in the year and, uh, you know, previously in the year in, in, in January, an almost Christmassy scene in uh, the start of 1922 when it appeared to start snowing outside Dublin Castle. But what was actually going on? Well, that was really going on, yes. Crowds had gathered at the lower gate of Dublin Castle because they knew something was happening. But as you say, this white, powdery, flaky stuff started coming down from the sky. It's a, a bleak, frosty, cold January morning in Dublin. So, you know, snow wouldn't have been unexpected. But then they realised that it actually wasn't snow. It was actually flakes of ash coming from a number of burning pyres in the the yard of Dublin Castle. These are the papers being burnt as the British leave. There's certain papers they can't bring with them and there's certainly papers they can't leave behind. So there's about five or six bonfires set in the grounds of the castle and these were the flakes that came down on the crowd outside. I mean, any historian they would give their eye teeth A, to know, <laughs> even know what those papers were, but B, to have actually seen them. Do we have a clue, any clue at all? I mean, are we talking about, uh, this is the following list of informers uh, that have been uh, assisting us for the last, you know, 20 years or something like mm. that. Any, any idea at all? Certainly no idea that I've come across. The people outside thought it was snow initially, as we said. Um, and I would really love as yeah. a historian to uh, know what they were. <laughs> and of course, this was an event that was repeated often oh. mm. uh, in the 50s and 60s in particular, as Britain left its, its colonies and uh, destroyed 
in some instances, the, the historical heritage of uh, some of the, the, the colonies that they were evacuating. Um, now soon after this, we see the first soldiers of the new National Army, soon after this in, in January, I'm not talking about Christmas of, of 1922, and that was another huge event, Cathy, that garnered a lot of publicity, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, the 31st of January, and the newspapers gave us a huge report. Uh, there was great excitement on the streets of Dublin. A small contingent of the new army, about 46 members or thereabouts, had assembled in the Phoenix Park, uh, directly in front of the Wellington Monument. So a little bit like passing by the Empire and moving into the new. The group lined up behind a kilt bar- band and they prepared for an inaugural march down the Liffey Keys towards the city centre. And as they passed the Royal Barracks on the Keys, the sound of the marching band attracted the attention of all the British soldiers that were still garrisoned there. I mean, they're they're waiting for their call to leave as such. And I suppose they were very bored. They probably had very little else to do. They're playing a football match. But they're attracted to the sound of the the band. They abandon the match, run over to the gate and see the crowd walking by. And then when the parade reaches Grattan Bridge, all the Dubliners are waiting for it there. So the massive cheer goes up. They make their way over the bridge onto the south side. They arrive at City Hall. The provisional government are on the steps on the platform there outside City Hall. A sharp eyes right command and the salute is taken before they make their way down to Beggar's Bush and the tricolour is raised. But of course, Laura, within a couple of months, you know, everything has changed. These, you know, I mean, who, who knows how many of those members of the National Army are taking opposite sides in, in the battle for Dublin in, in June of, of 1922? No, it's all changed. Um, and it's very optimistic in that January, February uh, moment. You also have on the other side, the British Army is starting to evacuate. So that the first uh, Duke of West, Westminster's uh, regiment are the first unit to start to evacuate. But then, of course, within, you know, three or four months, the, the, the IRA itself is, turn, is breaking down. Uh, and in June, of course, you have the outbreak uh, of a civil war. But there is those wonderful photographs of the, the Dublin Guard marching into Beggar's Bush and the, the beginning of taking over the uh, the city and Dublin Castle. And it's a big moment for everybody, full of optimism. But of course, mm. uh, the year isn't going to turn out the way I think most people are planning. Noel, is this reflected at all in the in anything you've come across in the military archive, these early days, early weeks, early months of the National Army? Yeah, so what we see really, I mean, the, the, the initial new National Army is mostly old IRA units. Mm. From the time they take over Beggar's Bush Barrack, they're entitled to be paid. There's an army pay course set up. They, they set about putting together the bones of, of the National Army. It's hard to see, you know, the split kind of happens. It's hard to see at times kind of who's going to split in what way. So at one point uh, in August 1922, the chief pay officer in the army pay corps, you know, reports that they're having trouble. You know, he, he gives an example of an instance where there's 100 men of the 1st Western Division got transferred to Dublin. These are new National Army soldiers. But the first that the payoffers know that they've been brought to Dublin is that they hear from the units there's a threat of what they're going to do if they don't get paid by the following Saturday because they've moved, you know, their wages didn't follow them. So in, in some cases, things are on a bit of a knife edge. You know, things are, you know, it's, there's a lot of confusion about, about who's getting paid and who's, who's taking what side and, and, and what's going to happen. Um, so you do see they become a, a formal national army kind of from the takeover of Beggar's Bush, but mm. it, it's not straightforward. Okay, so you've got other one army in the process of formation and another army in the process of evacuation. But one thing that surprised me, Lar, was the number of British soldiers who are still in Ireland right into the autumn of, of, of this period of, of 1922. Yeah, no, the, the British Army had become very, very big. Um, it reached a, a peak of 57,000 troops. So th- those troops have to be evacuated in 1922. 
Um, and that was a response to the War of Independence. The, the Traditionally in, in Ireland, there was only ever two uh, divisions kept in Ireland, and that would have been roughly about 20,000 troops. So they expanded up to almost four divisions to defeat the IRA. And they now needed to get rid of the 57,000 uh, troops. Liaisons officers are established within the uh, the, the, the Free State Army. And the, there's a continuous tension that there's going to be a spark and yeah. you could have a, a re-emergence uh, of the war. The uh, decision is, is to, to kind of focus on Dublin, Cork and Curra as the, the main place for the British Army now to be in. And the rest of the country, very, very quickly, if you look towards the end of January, uh, places in Tipperary, most of the military barracks in Tipperary are handed over by, by the end of January. So very quickly they were just letting go. This is very shortly after the vote to accept the treaty. And then by the summer, you've seen Cork and the Curra have been handed over. And then there's a focus as you come up to November, December, that all British Army troops now are focused uh, on Dublin for the final evacuation, which is going to happen December 1922. And at the same time, the civil war is raging. Well, I mean, this is one of the problems. One of the mm -hmm. problems is they're evacuating, they're handing over. Who are they handing over to? And this is the issue. Uh, as the, the, the IRA just starts to split, roughly 70 to 80% of the IRA goes anti-treaty and Collins keeps on to the, a, a very Dublin-focused, Longford-focused IRA of about 20%. And in some places, especially around Limerick, you're seeing anti-treaty units taking over barracks, accepting the barracks, as you're seeing the same thing happening in, in Clonmel and in Tipperary barracks and in Tipperary town. So again, there's this continuous tension of who am I handing over to? So it really is a, a scary time for large parts of the countryside. And Cathy, there were efforts obviously to heal the split in the, in the IRA to avoid the civil war. Those efforts were not ultimately successful, but the provisional government also has to get working on establishing the state because we tend to think of the creation of the Irish Free State as having happened in December 1921 after the signing of the treaty, but that's not actually the case. There are a number of things it has to be ratified you know and so on and so forth a number of things have to happen before the the state can be formally established but the provisional government is trying to create an identity for itself in uh, in in 1922 isn't it very much so and I, and obviously they start with the flag so we we get the tricolor is one thing the harp as our emblem and later that becomes part of our coinage and uh, subsequently when they're they're trying to decide the coinage they abandon the idea of the uh, saints and because people would use them as um, medals instead of coins uh, but they stick with the animals of Ireland but that comes a little later on but the ideas they're all being discussed the stamp is another thing uh, that becomes very important and the national anthem well, that's a long story Miles and we're going to have to save that for another day but uh, we have about three or four of them on the go once um, let Aaron remember and a nation once again and a few other things like that are, are trotted out as potential anthems and it takes a while before we get that one embedded in. So they're the things that sort of identify us as Irish as being different. But the other things then, we, we did mention they, they went about building houses. That that was a huge priority. The tenters' houses is, is a perfect example of that. Built with the last of the British money and yet built in the era of the new country. And I have heavy, heavy emphasis on educating boys. Uh, so we have a lot of boys' schools being either commenced or being built. And I've one lovely example from my own home place, the boys' school in Rialto. Uh, was actually built 
and the debt cleared in the early months of the new country. Uh, they had a big, big meeting in Dolphins Barn Church, had a collection at the meeting and cleared the debt on the school. So mm. that but, was... But underlining boys, this was the Taliban, basically. These are boys' schools <laughs> Boys' only. schools, because mm. we needed to get boys away, away from casual labouring and we also needed boys to stay in school a bit longer than 11 or 12. So this was the thinking very and, much boys. And also, I mean, I, you know, because I'm of a certain age, associate the Bi-Irish campaigns with the 1960s and the 1970s. But there were Bi-Irish campaigns in the ni- in 1922. There were. Uh, in fact, the very early uh, months, around February, uh, these huge ads appear in the newspapers and you're encouraged to cut them out. And I suppose today we'd stick them on the fridge. We didn't have a fridge back then. So you were told to keep them close at hand. And this gave you a list of all the Irish suppliers, things that you might need or you might never need, but everything was on it. So we we get details of buy Irish cloth, for example, get your bow tie, um, buy rosary beads, whatever you need it. They gave you the full detail of the company and you were encouraged to keep this list close at hand and consult it every time you went out the door. And the the, the post boxes, you know, I mean, there's one like literally 100 yards, 100 metres from, from, from my house with ER on it. So it's Edward Rex. Mm. Uh, so they were able to paint over them, but they obviously didn't chip away at the VRs and the and the ERs. Whose idea was that? Was that that the provisional government or was it just people going out with you know with tins of green paint and going right this is not going to be read any longer I haven't really nailed that one mm. home yet but certainly I know where the first post box was painted green was and that? I know when it happened Okay, so we're back to Dublin Castle again that lower gate so if we turn our back to the lower gate of the castle and look to cross say in the direction of the Olympia you'll see a post box right on your corner there in Dame Street it's a real statement because it's right outside the castle and that was the one that turned green uh, two days before Patrick's Day in March 1922. Now we have no agreed green so it was very much whatever pot of paint that was remotely green. I think this is where the 40 shades of green may have originated. So they were randomly painted green. Uh, Eventually we come up with a Serstoth green which again isn't a colour you'll find in any colour card or anything like that. But yes, we come up with an agreed colour eventually. But in the early days, it was a bit of the 40 shades. Whatever cover the red, that will do. And we painted them Patrick's Week. And you also had preliminary attempts to uh, assist with the revival of the Irish language. There was something called the Dáil Decree. Decree, Tell me about that. This is one I'm kind of glad didn't happen because when we're doing genealogy, it's hard enough coping with the Latin and the handwriting. Um, But if this one had come in, uh, this would have added another layer of difficulty for us all because there was a decree passed in March that only Irish versions of names could be used on birth marriage and death certificates and that was the the plan going forward it doesn't actually happen because of the subsequent what, what would events. you be what would you be I'd be quite knee scuffleish something like that quite anyway I'd be quite right, okay. quite marry you know something like that um so it, it would be a bit of a challenge you know if you're you're trying to trace You'd have to translate from the English to the Irish and and deal with any Latin that was floating around as well in in some of the churches. 
Um, and was it, it the civil war that put paid to that? Absolutely. But the one thing that, that we do have as a legacy from that degree is the beginning of the Gaeltachs. So areas designated as Gaeltachty um, originate from that degree. And um, later on, it, it becomes uh, the forum through which we get Irish as a compulsory subject for the intermediate certificate and later, by 1934, the leaving certificate. Mm. So it's the beginning of that thought process. But we didn't actually go down the road of Irish version of birth, marriage and death. Now, as Lara was saying, the uh, provisional government had a problem when it came to the numbers of members of the IRA who were supportive of the, the, the treaty. It was 20, probably 25 percent, uh, and that was more or less it. So uh, therefore, recruitment for the National Army uh, was something that was very, very important. And um, the well, the numbers ballooned in the National Army, tens of thousands of, of men as the Civil War Escalated a number of them. I think up to up to half of them were actually uh, World War One veterans who had taken pretty much no part in the in the War of Independence itself. And one of the projects that you manage at the Military Archives is something called the Army Census, which was conducted in and then we're now getting closer to to, to Christmas, November, nineteen twenty two. What was the Army Census, and why did they need one at this stage? So essentially the army census, like any, like the census that you see for 1901, 1911, it's to get a sense of exactly who they have. So they recorded on the night of the 12th and 13th of November, they recorded at each post uh, every soldier that was there. So their their full name, rank, date they joined, their home address and the details of their next of kin and religion, anything that way. The reason that happened is, we said earlier about the army pay corps being slightly overwhelmed, not, not knowing who they had. They also had these splits happening, different barracks. They didn't know, essentially, they didn't know how many soldiers they had to pay or, you know, how much uniforms they needed to order or billeting, anything that way. They really didn't know who was on their books. And there's an example from Limerick in uh, late September. The GOC then there gets in touch with General Headquarters and you can hear the frustration in his message. Basically, he tells them, look, I'm after letting a load of my soldiers go. So his message was, reservists discharged owing to the fact government has taken no notice of repeated appeals to remove prisoners. Had no room for them in jail unless we released the regulars. So he's in charge down in Limerick. He's getting very frustrated. He can fit some prisoners and he can fit some soldiers. He can't fit both. And it's, it's essentially... Kind of, I suppose, to help impose kind of central control on the army, they decided in October that they're going to do a census to see exactly who they have on their books. So it was administered through the director of organisation, who at the time was Commandant General Dermot O'Hegarty. And as each each post got a uniquely identified form uh, on the night of the 12th of November, you wrote down who was there and sent your report back. And, and presumably because at this stage, the conventional phase of the Civil War was more or less over by you know, by November of, of 1922. You weren't going to get any irregulars, as the Free State like to call them, uh, uh, signing on as, 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 as <laughs> members of the Free State Army looking for a few bob or anything. Like no, that. no, you tend to see, I mean, there are some very small, obscure posts in private houses around the place. And I mean, it isn't, it isn't 100% accurate. I mean, so for example, we know that Baldonna was taken over in May 22 but there's no returns for Baldonnell so we can't claim that it has every single soldier on it because they are still fighting the civil war at the time but um, you do get a much clearer sense of exactly how big the army is and where mm. people are and as Lara mentioned what earlier was it about 50,000 by the by November was it at that because I think that was the the final compliment was around that, about 50,000 that 50, was the figure that was, there's actually there's about 35,000 uh, entries mm. on the census um, now a lot of people would have joined it was known as a volunteer reserve so a lot of people would have joined up 
kind of agreeing to sign on for six months. So, you know, between there's, there's a constant state of flux. So, yeah, there's figures bandied about. Um, you do tend to see patterns. So, I mean, Cork had had the most. There was close to 4,500 troops in Cork, followed by Dublin, 3,500. Down to Leitrim, you've only got 163 soldiers uh, stationed in Leitrim at the time. You do also have to bear in mind that this is this is one moment in time. Mm. So you see in Limerick that there was guys let go because they couldn't afford to, couldn't, couldn't, didn't have space to keep them. The census conducted, uh, you'd imagine it was quite difficult, quite a lot of work conducting it even in early November. And then 1st of December, there's a wireless message from uh, GHQ to Donegal to the GUC up in Drumbo. Um, three weeks after the census, he just says, recruit 300 men, will require both companies within a fortnight. So, even though you've got this basis now of who's in the army, it's it's constantly in flux. There's mm. some people leaving. There's, there's more been taken on. You've also found a couple of women on that census, haven't you? Yeah, that, that was a bit of a surprise. So technically, there should only be, there's only one woman that could, could even be considered to be on the census. So Bridget Lyons Thornton was a commissioned officer. She actually was commissioned the day after the census was taken. So the 13th of November, um, she becomes a commissioned officer, a medical officer in the National Army. But we actually had someone get in touch with us there two or three weeks ago asking about the two women on the census in Clamell. My first reaction was, no, no, there's no women on the census. Um, so we've looked into it since. So again, even just to give an idea of, of how people were recording or reporting information on the census, there's two nurses uh, in the military post down in Clamell at the time. And I think the people filling out the census just weren't really sure what to do. The army nursing service as it is now wasn't started until the following year. These were two kind of medical nurses in the post, so they got put down as well. Um, it is a bit of an anomaly, though, because you see in the Curra, um there was a big military hospital in the Curra, and there's none of the nurses there recorded either. So there are two women on it, but they're not military and mm. they would have been properly enlisted. Lar, on a scale of one to ten, describe how would you evaluate the achievement of the free state in actually getting to a point where, um, you know, as Noelle was saying, by November they can count at least 35,000 members of the of the National Army. I mean, I would have thought, I would have assumed that, uh, you know, back in, in uh, at the time of the definitive split, when the Civil War starts, they could hardly have had more than about uh, uh, 5,000 IRA members who were prepared to take up arms on behalf of the Free State. No, I mean, militarily, the, the, the Free State Army has, uh, has fought very well. I mean, with, by the end of August, it's taken over the country. And at that stage, as you said, the... Um, the conventional fighting has, has really stopped as you get into September and then you have guerrilla warfare mm. um, carried out in a very large numbers of deaths for, for free state soldiers. And in many ways, the anti-treaty forces have kind of fallen back on the way. The best way they know how to fight was guerrilla warfare. And that carries on into 1923. So militarily, they, I mean, it's, you know, when you look at it 100 years later, it is fought very well. Of course, it's the, you know, the, the execution policy that kicks in in November and then particularly in December. And from then on with the 77 executions and actually a few more, and the atrocities in Kerry that you kind of, you know, they're the things that are remembered. But if you were to purely look at it as a, a military force, it's cleverly used shipping to take Cork. I mean, Cork was a classic, uh, what they call in the military context, combined operations. You, you take a Navy operation, you take um, soldiers, you bring your guns, and very, very quickly they take back uh, Cork. Uh, and that speeds up um, that kind of conventional uh, mm. part. They have um, artillery as well. And they have the artillery. And once you have the artillery and the armoured cars, that's the advantage. So the state does uh, have the advantage. It has uh, 13 armoured cars. It has uh, about eight artillery guns. And it uses these very, very effectively. And, and for the anti-treaty forces, they were outgunned very, very quickly. And that allowed that conventional port part to be over. Mm. And then you're into, into a slog, which, you know, the approach that's taken then is to introduce a kind of very harsh response to executions. And it comes to an end then with the, with the killing of the anti-treaty leader, Lynch, in uh, the Knockmill Down Mountains. 
uh, and it's over, you know, but it's, uh, it's still a horrific time. Indeed. Um, Noel, there's also some interesting material in the military archives relating to the Special Infantry Corps. Tell us a little bit about the function of the Special Infantry Corps, because they were associated, they were attached to the, the National Army, but they were doing very specific jobs. Yeah, so there's a few different corps that are set up specifically to deal with slightly different issues. So Special Infantry Corps were primarily to deal with things like land disputes. Uh, those most active down in uh, Waterford, I think, they were slightly more ad hoc to the military administration. Um, you see, there's there's another one. Um, you're talking about the uh, armoured cars and things that way. So the anti-treaty side moved to a policy of destroying railways and properties to try and cripple communications. So you get another corps like the Railway Protection Repair and Maintenance Corps set up in September 22 to try and protect communications around the country. So as things start to normalise towards the end of the Civil War, these are the first units to get demobilised. So the Special Infantry Corps, Railway Protection Repair Maintenance Corps, they're only the first ones to go once you start seeing some semblance of a normal army and, and reduction in numbers. We're talking about Christmas 1922 and the changes that uh, took place over the course of a pivotal year in Irish history. My guests are Cathy Scuffle, Noel Grothier and Lar Joy. Lar, um, on the subject, we, we talked about the evacuation of the British Army, um, but let's talk about the, the last week just before Christmas of, of 1922. Um, he sent us an extraordinary photograph of that evacuation. And it's a photograph which is taken from the port, mm-hmm. uh, looking up looking up the keys past the point depot. And I mean, something, I mean, we were talking about it beforehand that I find extraordinary. The point looks exactly the same. It changed. Hasn't changed a bit in a hundred, in a hundred years. But uh, just tell me about those last, those last few days of the British Army. In so the, the, the final day of the British Army in Ireland after 750 years is actually the, the Saturday the 17th of um, December. But the evacuation of Dublin starts on the 14th. And the remaining units in uh, Richmond Barracks or Keogh Barracks on the south side um, are brought through Dublin Port and, uh, and evacuated, and it carries on. But the 17th is the, is the kind of key day. It's the, the, the last day. There were 85 uh, military barracks, air force, airfields, and forts around Ireland. And it's the north side barracks are evacuated on the 17th. So you see the Royal Barracks, now called Collins Barracks, where the National Museum is. You have McKee Barracks, which at that stage was known as Marble Barracks. But you have the famous Magazine Fort, which had played a role in the 1916 Rising. And all the other small little kind of buildings that were occupied by the British Army are evacuated. Um, and it all happens very, very quickly. Um, General McCready, who's in charge of uh, all Army British Army forces in Ireland, goes to an area called the Croppies Acre on the Keys and uh, over 20 minutes about two and a half to 3,000 British Army soldiers file past and march down the, the North Keys the whole way down to Dublin Port and to that gate that you mentioned which is still there on an area that's called within the port as the North Wall Extension. And that area had been taken over by the British Navy in 1914. It had become a military base and uh, five ships are brought in uh, to evacuate these two and a half thousand uh, soldiers at the same time, there's a very big military operation. Um, the Free State are, are, are surrounding the city. They're fearful that there's going to be an mm. attack. Uh, but at the same time, the, the citizens of Dublin come out in very large numbers and cheer, and can be seen in the photographs, cheering the, the troops as they evacuate. There's actually a rush at, at, at around one o'clock where a large group of women uh, burst through the gates to get up to the ships to start waving at their many of their boyfriends leaving the, the city. 
And uh, we know then that, uh, that the last British officer or soldier to, to be in Ireland officially is Captain Robinson, who had been in charge of the whole evacuation over the previous year. Uh, and he goes up the, the gangplank of uh, the last ship, the Avonia, and that leaves at 3.45. And as I said, after visiting for, for 750 years, that was the, the last time that the British Army were, were in the uh, 26 counties. And General McCready, who was the officer commanding when the evacuation takes place, uh, has, writes an autobiography and he, he, he describes uh, a lot about that evacuation or of that evacuation in his autobiography. He actually mentions the curtain falling on the Irish drama in which British troops had played their part for 750 years. Um, yeah, no, he had. And, and uh, the last chapter in his two-volume autobiography, which is available online, is uh, is fascinating. And, and his views of Ireland are, are, are interesting. He was a very capable officer, but uh, he was horrified to be described in the Irish Times on the 18th of December as an Irishman. Um, his wife was from Cork, but he himself saw himself very much an Englishman, but he was horrified to be described as Irish. Um, but he did kind of describe Dublin in December uh, 1922, and he, he felt that there was, strolling through the town, a general air of depression seemed to have settled on the place. Uh, no demonstrations, no music or occasion, and occasional revolver shots, no flags except a few whitish-looking bits of bunting that once displayed the green, yellow and white national colours. So he's very much, he feels that this is a country that's in decline. Uh, and in many ways, that's probably how Dublin did look to him, because at the height of the Civil War, uh, that's, that's how the, the mood was in, in the city. Uh, at the same time as uh, at that weekend, the son of Captain Sean McGarry uh, was being buried. At, uh, McGarry's house had been attacked and burnt down mm. and his son had been killed. And that was the other big event happening that weekend was the, was the funeral, which was well covered uh, in the newspapers. And of course, internationally, you have to remember that uh, there's wars happening all over Europe in, in Ukraine, but also in Poland. The president of Poland is assassinated. So there, if you read the newspapers from December 1922, it's not just a kind of a, an air of depression that settles on Dublin, but it's, the, the whole of Europe is on fire. And uh, in your capacity as a Port Heritage Director, one of the, the many innovations that you have introduced is dramatising elements of, of, of Irish history. And uh, I gather you're going to be doing this with the final evacuation. Yeah, we did this with the vac- final evacuation, which is, again, we've, we've uh, worked closely with the uh, theatre company New Productions. Uh, last year, we, we looked at the, uh, the port and the north inner city and uh, the impact to a, a theatre show called um, Book of Names, which focused purely on the, uh, the War of Independence. For December, we've looked at, uh, again, the evacuation uh, with new productions. I'll be running again uh, in January, a series of theatre shows in and around the Northwood Extension to kind of tell you that story. Now, Cathy, this was the first Christmas of the Irish Free State. People would have sent cards at home and abroad, um, but they would have noticed something different on the on the post, wouldn't they? They would have. And, and I suppose the first change really happened around February because we were still using the British stamps, but... Uh, on that occasion in February, a new prank or a new postmark appeared on all your letters. And this, this caused quite a lot of excitement because your post was one of your main means of getting information. I mean, there was up to three collections in Dublin of an average day at that time. So they changed the frank to Realtus Sheldach Naharan, which meant provisional government. So that was the quickest and easiest way of making a change. But then we get into the big discussion about the new stamps. So we're going to abandon the British stamp and go for our own ones. So these are much anticipated. Lots of newspaper coverage about what type the stamp. They get more dramatic as time goes on and eventually we manage to wind it back. So we get the Clive Sullish being uh, one of the new stamps. 
house with the uh, the sword of light. Uh, we get the four provinces, the one I think most people will remember that one. The Celtic cross, which was uh, an imagery that had been bounced around quite a bit. In fact, Sinn Féin had it as their own little stamp at, on one occasion. And the one that comes into being is very similar. And then the final one was the one with the island of Ireland showing no border. So the complete island of Ireland. Different colours for different denominations. And the rollout of these new stamps continued into the new year as well. And of course, when they're posting the cards, well, they're all posting them into green post boxes, as Mm. I mentioned earlier. So that's the other big change. But I can't imagine that there would have been an awful lot of of Christmas shopping in that year. I mean, we were pretty much on our uppers in December 1922, weren't we? We were, but I think people were trying to make the most of it. I mean, there's certainly an air of celebration throughout the year uh, socially. I mean, Patrick's Day was the party of the century and we're not going to let a Christmas go by in this country without (laughs) having some sort of a party around it as well. Now, I do know in my own home place it was a bit lean because we'd had the robbery in the brickworks and things like that, but people still found a way. So, uh, yes, there's an air of optimism and there's certainly an air of looking to the future. We're not down. We Mm. might be the wealthiest country in the world but we're actually going to try and find a way so people did shop um, no, there's yeah. a there's definitely a kind of a, a tone. There is a change. There is a kind mm. of a set of mild depression around the city. But you do have pantos on. You have mm. Robinson Crusoe's on in the Queen uh, Theatre. Uh, a civic survey of Dublin's announced. So there's this uh, the, collectively within Dublin, the, the city is coming together, and they want to see what a new city is going to like. So you do see to start to see the the, the change in language. Um, Dublin Port, the board announced that they are now the gateway for the free state. So you do see optimism and, and a change in how things are, people are pronouncing and, and uh, describing things, which is quite dramatic for a country which was so closely associated with Britain. And, and now they are starting to change. And that occurs again as you go into 23 and 24. So there, there is a wee bit of optimism. I'm going to put a downer on this because uh, uh, with Noel, because the, the British and the Germans managed at least one uh, Christmas truce during the, the First World War, but uh, we didn't manage a, a truce in the Civil War. Not really, no. There's some of the some of the posts do report, you know, that there's nothing to report. Um, you know, troops are doing fatigues. There's not a huge amount happening. But you do see that there are actions still ongoing around the country. There's a few different ones. So the, there's a private Samuel Crawford. So we see from the census in November, he's stationed at Crosshaven and Cargilline, 67 other soldiers. And we know from the census that he's a, a 23-year-old Waterford man from Capaquin. He had joined the army in Yule on the 14th of August, 22. He was a member of the Church of England and his next of kin was his father, also Samuel Crawford. So he's a very young man. We don't really know very much more about him. You move forward to Civil War Operation Reports and around Christmas Eve, there's an operation report from the Cork District and it's, it's quite terse. It just says two irregulars captured in the vicinity of Blarney and one national soldier found shot near Monkstown. So the national army who's shot is, um, is Private Samuel Crawford. Move forward to a different collection in the pensions collection. His sister uh, applies for a pension as, as being a dependent on, on his wages. Um, even the family... They didn't know much about his death. They record that he's been shot and that she's dependent on him. He had been working variously as an engine driver and a timekeeper before he joined the army during the Civil War. And he's only in the army four months before he gets killed around Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. The other one, um, there was quite a large post in Tullamore. There's uh, 111 men uh, stationed there on the night of the census. And they send in a report just after Christmas 
this Colonel Commandant P. Mulcahy from, from the 3rd Southern Command. And he says, uh, on the night of the 25th, a large quantity of hay was burned on the farm of people named Adams from Clonminch. These people had supplied the turkeys for Christmas dinner for Tullamore troops. Captain Delaney party proceeded the scene without result. So there's this kind of, um, you know, revenge taken against the local farmers who who had fed the, the Christmas dinner to the troops. They wait till Christmas Day and, and burnt down their hay. Uh, you also see there's a, a post in Yall, 151 troops late on Christmas Day. They're attacked by rifle and revolver fire. There's no casualties and it, it kind of breaks up after 15 minutes. But you do see it's not, things are still ongoing. Mm. The fact that it's Christmas Day hasn't really uh, you know, softened anyone's I'd, I'd like attitude. to be more positive about it on this Christmas Day, <laughs> but we're talking about a, a country in the midst of a civil war. And I mean, Lara, people didn't know at the time. I think, you know, perhaps people might have assumed because, as we, you know, we've talked about the conventional phase of the war being over. But a lot of the real nastiness, I know ex- the executions had begun in right. November, but uh, you know that, that was only a down payment on the executions that then take place in, in 1923. And uh, I mean, the people of Kerry, for example, had no idea what they were about to receive no, I mean, themselves in for. No, I mean, once you get into January and February, it becomes very, very, very nasty and also becomes very personalised. In particular, General Daly down in Kerry, you know, carries out a series of atrocities and, you know, they're targeted uh, and it has, as I said before, it has everlasting impact. And, you know, you then have the, the irony that when General Lynch is killed, that it suddenly stops. And in a way, like a lot of events in Irish history, it's, uh, we're lucky that it stops at that stage and it didn't carry on. Because at that stage, it became incredibly violent. You had, uh, you know, specialised units going around, some of them out of control at this stage. And it does start to come. It, it takes still another two years before the police and this new uh, mm. Garda Shikon to take over. This concept of being unarmed is very, very important. If they had been armed, I don't think there would have been buy-in locally. And by 26, 27, you see a transition and it's happened and miraculously it's, it's stopped. We were also looking in Ireland, I think, in, in, 19, in June 1921 when there was a truce. Because at that stage, once you get into June and July of 1921... Again, the people who are dying are mainly civilians, and that's what's going to start happening uh, in, in the civil war once you go past uh, December 1922. It's more and more civilians are being killed. Mm. A harbinger of, of things to come as the, the civil war continued into 1923, something that we're going to be dealing with uh, in the, the next series of the of the History Show. I'm afraid a lot of that won't make very pleasant listening. Uh, we'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you all very much to uh, my guests, Noel Grothier, Cathy Scuffle, and Lara Joy for joining me to talk about what was going on in Ireland a hundred years ago uh, this Christmas. Some of it was upbeat, but uh, a lot of it was not. We opened the show with a reading of the Christmas message from Richard Mulcahy to the soldiers of the National Army. To play us out tonight, we'll hear an excerpt from the New Year message from Mulcahy, published in Ontoglock on the 30th of December 1922. My thanks tonight uh, to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. A remarkable year in the history of Ireland draws to a close. Twelve months ago today, our country was held by the armed forces of England. Today, the tricolour floats over every military stronghold and centre of government in the Irish Free State. And there is not a single soldier or armed servant of England in our territory. The Irish Free State is fully established, fully functioning and internationally recognised. 
and we face the new year full of hope and confidence. The infant state has been up against rude storms, but it has weathered them successfully. It is well on its way to that peace and prosperity which all who love Ireland so ardently desire for her. In the future, the name of the Army of Ireland will rank high not only in Irish history, but in the records of national armies throughout the world. They face the dawning year with a quiet confidence that it will bring peace and prosperity to Ireland. To one another and to the people of Ireland, they send a message of cheer, hope and encouragement for the new year. Full many a bird did wake and fly Full many a bird did wake and fly To the manger bed with a wandering cry On Christmas day in the morning 